uh, a hint of some of the, the, the common understanding of the book. Um, a lot of we, people, when they come to the book of Ecclesiastes, they see that Ecclesiastes is speaking. He, he's observing the perplexities of life, and he concludes life is meaningless, or life is uh, vanity, or futile. The NIV, for example, the first verse of the NIV almost like shocks us as it, as it states, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I, I think that color is kind of our perception or our impression of the book. Um, I don't, as we've been going through this winter, you, you know, um, oh, that's interesting, uh, that... I don't believe that is, it is, it is the, the true message of the book that life is, is meaningless. As we've seen, Solomon, I, I believe Solomon is actually make, building a positive case for us. He does concede that, yes, life is, the word that we've been using this whole winter is life is breath. Which is a better translation of that key word. But one of the things, and the reason why I've called this, this series uh, Breathtaking is that I've talked about that there is a beauty in this breath. We'll go back here. There we go. That there's beauty in this breath. That, that life is beautiful, and it is particularly beautiful, and it's only beautiful when we, get, when we gain the perspective that every moment is to be observed to be a gift from the hand of God. I suggested to you that a key verse, a key verse in the book of Ecclesiastes is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, which says he makes all things beautiful in his time. That's where, that's where I came up with this idea of breathtaking. He makes all things beautiful in his time. That idea of breath that we've been talking about, the idea that Solomon has been observing about life as a breath, you know, life is fleeting. You go, it's here today and it's gone. Life, life, life passes by so fast like a breath. Life is perplexing. You ever like go outside and you go, and you try to figure out, you know, which way your breath is going to go. It's perplexing. It's confusing. It, it can't be grasped onto, right? The more you try, he uses this phrase again and again through the book. It, it, life, if we're trying to gain something out of life, it's like shepherding the wind or chasing the wind, which is like going like, go outside and go, and then try to chase that down and hold on to it. You're not going to be able to do that. The more you try to, to, to hold on to life and extract good or gain from it, the more it will slip through your fingers. So what do we do with life? What, what, what Solomon counsels us to do with life is to do this. And see its beauty. And see its beauty as being part of God's great design for our lives. And so we're not chasing after the wind. We're not trying to shepherd the wind. We're trying to see God's beauty in the wind. And that's what Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that's why that's the key verse. He makes all things beautiful in his time. And, and I, I do believe, actually chapter 7, what we read before, chapter 7 is one of the reasons why I realized that I think some of the common ways that we read the book of Ecclesiastes can't be right. Because if he's saying that life is futile, if he's saying that life is meaningless, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 doesn't make any sense because Ecclesiastes chapter 7, he's writing about a better way to live. A better way to live. How can you live a better way if all of life and everything we do is meaningless? You can't live a better way if everything is meaningless. 
But in chapter 7, he makes a number of comparisons, and in fact, better is the key word. He uses the phrase better than seven times in these 14 verses. And so he's teaching us about a, a better way to live. But what he's doing here when we get to chapter 7 is he's coming face to face with perhaps the, um, I guess, the most threatening pushback or counter-argument to his case and his thesis that life is beautiful. And he's going to come face to face with, you know, that same question that, has, that we've always pushed back and that people have always pushed back on this idea of a God who is loving and who is caring and who has created the universe. The pushback is suffering and death. How can God be good when life hurts so much? And he's going to say through these 14 verses in chapter 7, this is, this is his, you know, his pushback to that. And he's actually going to argue something that would shock us and be surprising. He's going to suggest that the hardest, most difficult, most sorrowful days of our lives are actually good things in the hands of the Lord. He's going to argue that those, those moments that bring us the most pain, God is actually going to use them toward his good. When he says all things are beautiful in his time, Solomon is saying, I am serious. I mean all things. That's what he's talking about in these 14 verses. So, I don't know. The, the, the chapter is interesting because it reads like it's just a bunch of Proverbs one after another, which is really hard to preach. But as you, as you kind of read through this chapter and kind of reflect on it, you see he's really pushing kind of three movements. He's making three main points through these 14 verses. Uh, the first is this. The first big point that you see through the first six verses are this, bad days are good because they call us to face the realities of life and death. That's, that's the good that is to be found in those bad days. A good name, he says in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death, the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is breath or vanity. He starts out with a statement in verse 1. Now, the first part of verse 1 is simply kind of his summary of all that we've been talking about the last two weeks because we've talked about money, possessions, wealth, contentment, stewardship, right? And so the first part is kind of like his transition into this next. His first verse is like a bridge verse. So he says, a, a good name is a better than a, a, a precious fragment, precious ointment. In the Hebrew, it's actually a, it's a play on words. It's a, it's a tov shim is better than a tov shemat. And they sound very similar. So what he's saying basically is your character is, is more important than riches. Your reputation is worth more than riches. Kind of a good summary of where we've been the last couple of weeks. 
But the second part of the verse moves us into this section. And here he says something that seems crazy when we first hear it. It seems like it's, it, it's, it's an audacious statement when he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's interesting, I get, kind of gave two prayer requests as I came up here. One is about a family in our family this week who's experienced a new birth. Another was a family, our pastor, who's experienced death in their family. If you look at those two things, we just brought those two prayer requests for you. And if we were to evaluate them, ah, hey, you know, which is better? I don't think any of us would say the second. We would go with the birth. And so what is Solomon speaking of here? And how can he make this claim? It's ridiculous on its face. We, one of the things is, what, what does it mean, this day of death? What is the day of death? It's clear from the context and going through these 14 verses that Solomon isn't speaking, I don't, I don't believe Solomon's speaking here of the day of our own death is better than the day of our own birth. But he's speaking about days in which, like Pastor David's family this last week, days in which we are confronted with death. Like he goes on a couple times, even in this section, he speaks twice about the house of mourning. You know, where, where we go to, um, you know, this is where you, a memorial service, like going into the house of mourning, that, that place in which you're having those, those funerals. He closes, he concludes the 14 verses by using a different term. He, he doesn't call it the day of death there, he calls it the day of adversity. He speaks in these passages about suffering and sorrow. And so I don't believe what he's speaking about when he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. He's not talking about our own death. He's talking about those days in our life when we come face to face with the reality of death, sorrow, suffering, and adversity. And he's actually saying that those are better days. There is good in those days. Because the day of death brings us face to face with the realities of life. That's where we encounter the breath. For Solomon, this confrontation with death is a good thing. So I'm reading this one book uh, as part of my preparation for this series. It's called, um, it's by uh, David Gibson, Life Lived Backwards. And he just writes something profound here. He writes that death is a powerful evangelist. Death is a preacher. Death is an evangelist, Gibson, right? He looks us in the eye and asks us to look right back at him with a steady gaze and allow him to do his work in us. Death is a preacher with a very simple message. Death has an invitation for us. He wants to teach us that the day of our coming death can be a friend to us in advance. The very limitation that death introduces into our life can instruct us about life. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Not because death is better than life. It's not, but because the coffin is a better preacher than a crib. Death is an an evangelist. And and look at verse 2. He says, death is is an evangelist. His message is one that we all need to hear because the message that death brings, those days when we're confronted with the reality of the brevity of life, should speak to us all. He says in verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, 
For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. If death is a preacher, the first point in his sermon is meant to bring us, each one of us, face to face with the reality that death awaits us all. And that at some point, and it doesn't matter, we have many young people here, we have some older people here. The first point in death sermon is it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter what your background was, it doesn't matter what country you've come from, it doesn't matter what, what you've accomplished in your life. The first point in death sermon is that we all will come face to face with him. We have an expiration date. The Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. And to Solomon, he's saying a better way to live is to set ourselves in places where we are confronted with the reality of life and death. And sometimes we, we, we can't get ourselves there unless it, unless it hits us in the face, unless, unless we're actually brought to the place where we're having to recognize and stare death in our faith and face. And that's the time where we understand our destiny, the destiny that awaits us all. That after man, it's appointed to man once to die and after that, the judgment. To Solomon, going into the house of mourning is better than a house of feasting because it awakens us to the realities of life and death. Gibson goes on to write, he says, the preacher has learned, Solomon has learned that there's two types of people at a funeral. The fool sits there thinking about how unbearably grim this is and can't wait to be outside in the sunshine and back to what he was doing to get out to the pub in the evening. But the wise person sits in the funeral home and stares at the coffin and realizes that one day it will be his turn. The wise person asks himself, when it is my turn, what will my life have been worth? What will they be saying about me? He loved his bowling, his partying, his holidays. Is that all they will say? Death's sermon is meant for us all because we all will face him. Death is a trap we cannot escape, and the preachers are realists. Solomon is a realist. One of the things I see about the, the, this whole book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon is going to bring to our attention some of the most uncomfortable realities of life. And he's going to set them right in front of us. And he's going to say, look at these. Look at oppression. Look at injustice. Look hard at death. Look at the fleetingness of life. Look at its monotony. Look at its perplexities. However, Solomon's message and the message of death is not one of despair, but of hope. Look at verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, he actually says, sorrow is better than laughter. Now, I'm a guy who loves to laugh. I generally do like to laugh. What he's actually saying is, no, in this case, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And here Solomon promises us, he promises us something very profound. That the uncomfortable sorrow, the, the Hebrew here is translated vexation, the perplexing sorrow, the grief that you cannot understand and the despair that confuses The uncomfortable sorrow that confronts us on the day of death, the day that we are confronted with our mortality, is actually a tool that God can use to bring us to a greater gladness. 
that actually confronting the uncomfortable realities of life, God can use as a tool in his hand to actually bring about wisdom and lasting gladness. And, and here I think we must understand that our culture has a different approach to this. Our culture has an approach, a, a different strategy for dealing with the uncomfortable realities of life. The strategy our culture will use again and again is the strategy of escapism. We do not like to confront the uncomfortable realities of life and we will do all that we can to distract ourselves and divert our attention away from those uncomfortable realities. We, we, we see this everywhere in our culture. We see this through, you know, I'd call it ideological escapism that we, you know, sometimes you hear about on college campuses particularly. I don't like that idea, so I don't want to hear it. I want to go over here. I want to I surround myself with people who believe the same things I believe, and I want to stay in my bubble, in my echo chamber. So ideological escapism. In other corners of our culture, we might find pharmaceutical escapism. I want to drown out the reality of death or the difficulties of life with drugs or alcohol or opioids or, or whatever. Pharmaceutical escapism. I can't bear to confront the realities of life. We see in other corners of our culture fantasy escapism. Man, I, I, I do this. You lose yourself in gaming, in virtual worlds in books, in television. They, they, these sorts of things we literally give the name in our culture, diversions, right? Like that's what we call them, they're diversions. What are they diverting us from? Now, I'm not saying that you can't, you know, have some of these things as hobbies, but, but talking about this as a means to withdraw from life when you find yourself actually living in the fantasy. Pornography is an aspect of this fantasy escapism, or can be. In another corner in our culture, there's leisure escapism. I got that, I just got to get away. I just got to get away. And, and, well, I mean, for us in Canada, this is the reality, right? Like, <laughs> this is winter escapism. That's a different thing. <laughs> I just got to get away to someplace warm. I can't bear this anymore. But, but leisure escaping, whether it's travel, sports, entertainment, or still thinking. And, and yes, and I was reading an article in uh, psych, Psychology Today and the, the article online, it spoke to, and I had to agree with it, there can be even a religious escapism. There can be a religious escapism. There are forms of religion that are escapists, particularly within Christianity, kind of the, the name it, claim it, Prosperity gospel teachings where, you know, I don't want to even give voice to the negativity because if I, if I acknowledge negativity, that will, that, will, that will bring it into greater reality. There can be escapist Christianity. And the, the temptation of all these forms of escapism is that when the day of death comes or when the day of adversity comes, we do not listen to the sermon that it has prepared for us. But we want to turn up the volume on any other way in our life. Turn up the volume and tune out that message that the day of death has for us. He speaks about this. 
It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools, for as the cackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. We want to turn up the volume of the cackling of fools, and it's just making the fire warmer that we're burning in, that we're drowning in. The difference, the op- I didn't know what, if there was an opposite of escapism. Maybe you guys could think of a word that means the opposite of escapism. I could not think of one, so I made up one. Faceitism. <laughs> so please, if you have a better word, please tell me after this message. Because I spent a whole week trying to figure out, is there an opposite to escapism? And the opposite to escapism I could only think of is, is that to make up a word, face it-ism. And that is, what, that is what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is doing. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is saying, here is the reality of life. Will you, have, will you be able to stand in front of the reality of life and look at life face to face? Are you able to look at the realities of life face to face? And are you able to stare into the reality of death face to face and prepare yourself to meet your God? I've said it before, because I, I laugh, sometimes joke about the safe space culture that we've created here in Canada. And I've said it before. Setting yourself in front of the Word of God is not a safe space. Coming to church each week, but that, that we would open up this word of God that, that, that it, it calls itself sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce the heart and divide the soul from the spirit. It is not a safe space to be. Because we all know, you know and I know, that we've come before the word of God at times and it has cut us. And it has made us uncomfortable. And what we do as Christians is we actually voluntarily, daily in our time with God, daily in our, in, our, in our personal scripture reading, and then weekly as we come together as a congregation, we actually sit in front of the word of God and we ask God to cut us. Psalm 139, search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my ways. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in life everlasting. Psalm 139. We are actually asking God to confront us with the realities of life. That is face it-ism. Christianity is not an escape from the difficult or uncomfortable issues that we face in life. Christianity actually calls us to look life right in the face, to wrestle with it. We are of those who wrestle with God. We need to face the reality that our life will end. If you walk through life without understanding that this life you, that God has given you is short and can be taken from you, and today is a great reminder of this, as, we, as I could hardly walk to church for fear of breaking a hip. I'm not even that old yet, I don't think. I was worried about my hips. We need to face the reality that our life will end and we don't know when. We need to face the reality that death is something we need to prepare for. We need to face the reality that if we are honest with ourselves and look deep into our heart, we have not honored God and loved Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not honored God as the creator and maker of the universe. And we have blasphemed against Him and turning away from Him, rebelling against Him and going our own way. And if we are honest before God, we need to face the reality that judgment, condemnation, and eternal punishment await us for having so blasphemed the name of God. We need to face the reality, and this is a hard one for us to get to. We need to face the reality that our judgment and condemnation is deserved before a holy God. 
and face the reality, and this is a hard one for us to come to, we need to face the reality that just simply changing and tweaking the moral reform of our life will be enough to appease this God whose justice we have violated. We need to face the reality that we just can't scrub ourselves clean. We need to face the reality that our only hope in life and death is the saving mercy of God. We need to face the reality that Christ was punished severely for our sins. He was tortured. He was scorned. He was blasphemed. He was bruised, he was whipped, he was beaten, and he was crucified for our sins. It's an uncomfortable thought. You ever watch, sometimes we've shown uh, on Good Friday, sometimes we'll show videos or you've watched a movie of the crucifixion. And you say, how violent and how gross. How uncomfortable that makes me to think that Christ was scourged and bled for sinners like you and me. It's not, an uncom- it's not a comfortable reality to be confronted with. We need to face the reality that he bled and cried and was tortured and died for us. And then we need to face the reality that he rose. That he rose from the grave victorious, having defeated death. We need to face the reality that we need a Savior and that God has provided. And we need to face the reality that he has called us to, to, to set these realities in front of others. If we truly believe what we believe, we've been truly confronted with the realities of life and death in the gospel of Christ, it means that we also need to be those who set these realities in front of others. What the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he says, we are the fragrance of Christ. We, the church, we are the, the fragrance of Christ. Before everyone we meet, they, they, you know, I talked about here at the beginning, the good name, a good reputation is, is better than uh, a, a precious ointment. Paul later says, we are, the, we are a greater, precious ointment. We are the fragrance, the perfume of Christ. But to some, when they hear our message, we are the fragrance of death. Because we're setting in front of them uncomfortable realities that there's a creator God who we stand condemned before. And if we do not turn to him, we'll be internally condemned. Yet he has offered and provided a savior. So so death and bad days, the day of death, is actually a good thing in God's hand because it causes us to confront the reality of life that everything within us wants to escape. But I will warn you with this, and I think this is where he goes next, is that bad days are bad because they can ruin us. There's danger in these days of adversity. And he he says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than proud in spirit. Don't be quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools and say not why were the former days better than these for it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Solomon argues and warns us that bad days can be very bad. They can ruin us if the Holy Spirit has not prepared us for them. See, when we come face to face with oppression, if we have lived in those safe spaces our whole life, 
If we've lived our Christian life in an escapist way where we're not willing to come to true terms with the harsh realities of life and death, and then we hit a day of oppression or we hit strong temptation or we hit a strong trial or or day of adversity, it can cause us to lose our way and lose our minds. That's what he says. He says, wisdom... uh, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness if we're not uh, uh, prepared for these days of adversity. These days can drive us into madness. These temptations can corrupt the heart. When we're faced with a bad day, a day of death or or adversity, we can so easily puff up our pride because it's proud to ask, why would God allow this to happen to me? Rather than to accept the days with patience of spirit, long-suffering is the Hebrew word. Anger can be very easily lodged in our heart. And we can very easily look back at the former days, saying, why were they better than these? And become bitter or paralyzed from moving forward. So, So take care in the day of death. Take care in the day of adversity. God can use those days. He does use those days to speak to us, to proclaim to us that we might face the realities of life, that we might prepare ourselves for death that awaits us all. But beware on those days, that you don't, don't become bitter, that you don't become angry, that you don't become resentful, saying, why are the bad days better than these? But how are we to hear the good message? How can we, how can we train ourselves to hear the message that the days of death and the days of suffering, the days of sorrow, the days of adversity bring? And that would bring us to our final couple verses here. Life-preserving wisdom. The wisdom that preserves life is understanding that God has made both. The bad days and the good days. That God has made them both. It says in verse 11, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of, adverse, uh, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Uh, the translation's kind of weird there at the end. It just says, for who can know what will be? God's made both. You don't know the day, the good day? Rejoice that it's a good day. But you don't know what tomorrow will be. The day of adversity? Listen. Listen to what God might be speaking to you through the day of adversity because you don't know what tomorrow will be. And I love Solomon's picture in verse 11. How many of you guys have a rainy day fund? Look at the college students. You guys are all like, I wish I had a rainy day fund, man. You don't need to raise your hand. As adults, one of the things you do when you're an adult is <laughs> you try to have some money set aside for the rainy day, for the bad day. Because you don't know when the car is going to break down. Right? You don't know when you're going to be sick and have to take some extra days off of work. Right? You don't know how that's going to happen. Right? And you don't know because you don't know what each day is going to bring. And so you set aside money for the bad day. What Solomon says here is what we should be doing in the days of joy or in the the days of prosperity is we should actually be storing up wisdom. We should be storing up wisdom for the day of adversity. 
which is a really interesting idea. What he means is you should be reflecting on God. Consider this. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? And, and the day of, of prosperity comes from his hand and the day of adversity comes from man. You should be storing these things up as wisdom so that when the day of adversity hits, you're able to hear its message that it has to speak to you and not drift away into anger and bitterness. Wisdom will carry you through a bad day and preserve your life when you're confronted with death. And that's the wisdom that will preserve you, that God has made both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity for his purpose. And how he finishes, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. You guys ever hear that old song? I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. It's an older song, and the chorus says, Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. I, I didn't know the story behind that song. It was written by a guy named Ira Stamphill. Ira, um, when he was 12 years old, he came to the Lord. He started playing accordion when he was 10 years old. He came to the Lord when he was 12. By the age of 17, he was writing his own music for church services. And when he was 22, he started preaching and playing music um, all around the U.S. He got married when he was 25. He married a woman named Zelma. Zelma was also a gifted musician, and she could sing, and she could play the piano. And they would tour together and do ministry together all, all around the U.S. In 1948, Zelma left him. Now, there's different opinions on why they divorced. Some say that she may have had addiction problems, and she left Ira for other men. Some say she was an excellent singer and wasn't content with life in the ministry. What is known is that she left him and she left the faith and she left her ministry. Ira was crushed. And three years later, Zelma actually died in a car accident. And after she had died, he went into an extended state of depression and grief. He couldn't understand after years of being dedicated to the service and ministry of God's work why God would allow him to go through this. And that he himself was tempted to give up in his Christian ministry altogether. And the story is that one day when he was driving and he was thinking about his ex-wife, deeply sad in despair, he started humming the tune. And that is the tune that he went, as soon as he got home, he went out and he started writing this and that's what he wrote. Rushed to his piano and wrote down the words and music to the song, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. That's the sermon. That's, that's death's great sermon to preach to us. I, uh, I actually wanted to give some time today, if you allow us a couple minutes here, I wanted to um, invite one of our members of our congregation, Ben Clausen, up. I just thought it'd be interesting for you to hear a bit of Ben's testimony and kind of some of the things he's, he's, he's working through. And uh, Ben, I'll just let you explain uh, some of kind of your uh, medical prognosis and, and, and some of that. And, and kind of, I think this one works, right? Can you turn on uh, the podium mic for Ben? 
I was thinking, you know, maybe two or three hours. Two but or three hours? Okay. I need, I need a stretch break, so could everybody take a stretch break? I'm a lot more comfortable being behind the piano or, uh, or somewhere else. It's kind of a vulnerable place to share, but Pastor Dan asked... Uh, Sorry, Dan, we, we made an agreement. You said I quit calling you Pastor Dan. And you, you can call me call whatever you want, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Dan asked me to share because um, not that I have any particular wisdom, but um, have experienced some losses over the last couple of years. And uh, kind of, you know, both in the traditional funeral sense and in kind of dream losses as well. Um, and so I think the idea was to kind of share a little bit of what I've kind sure. of learned. And is that sure. fair? Do you want to do Q and A, or do you no, want to just good. kind you, of? You can go. That'll be okay. that'll be wonderful. Sure, I'll I'll share a little bit, and then if you have some questions, you can. So um, I was thinking, you know, where's a good place to start? So I kind of back up six years ago. Um, I grew up in BC. Uh, six years ago was kind of a a confident young guy. Um, uh, Dad and I would go hiking a lot in in the mountains, and I was applying to medical school. Um, you know, pretty self confident in my abilities as a as a college kid, and uh, um, not a, not a, a perfect life. My my mom um, she has a, a condition in her family. It's called Huntington's disease. That's um, kind of passed down. And basically, it's a genetic condition where um, uh, brain cells start to die, and and it becomes quite debilitating as the as the condition goes on. So, so I grew up, you know, her. Oh, my mom's dad had it. Um, her older brother had it, um, and kind of experienced the funerals of both of them. Um, and it was actually my mom getting sick was one of the big things for me uh, that wanted, you know, kind of brought me to, yeah, I want, I want to do something medical, you know, to see if I can, I can help there. So six years ago, you know, uh, dealing with mom, but uh, otherwise life pretty good. And uh, my dad, I remember every now and then he'd be like, you know, I think, I think I'm ready to meet the Lord. You know, he said, I think... And uh, you know, from stories, you have friends that I know, Dad was quite the drinker in the day and the partier. And even growing up when I was younger, I, I could see him as, you know, he would have an explosive temper and, and at any time could kind of lose it on us. And it was kind of a scary place growing up. And then as mom started to get sick um, and not able to do things, she just kind of, you know, not get things done and Dad would be really mad. But I got to see him you know, being gentled over the years. So I got the privilege of seeing my dad become a really gentle guy and be like, you know, I think I'm ready to meet the Lord. And I'd be like, ah, ah, dad, you know, give him a punch in the arm and let's go hiking, you know. It's, let's go hiking. The song of fools. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think he'd given up drinking quite a few years before, but, you know, never mind about this. I'm ready to meet the Lord talk. And uh, so I had, uh, my applications were in for medical school. Um, one evening my mom called me and she said you know it's kind of funny your dad calls me every day and uh, he didn't Um, do you think you wouldn't mind going to check in on him 
And uh, so that night I drove over to his place, but everything was all locked up. And, uh, you know, I can do it in the morning. So the, in the morning I had work, spent the day kind of. And then anyway, at the very end of the day, went kind of went in to check in. And um, I knew right away when I opened his door to his apartment that something was wrong. You know, there was things hadn't been touched in a while. And I, I found my dad, uh, you know, on the, beside the bed, um, on the floor. And uh, I remember just running, like, Dad, Dad. And uh, he, had, he had scraped all the skin off his face because he was trying, you know, all night to try to get up. We, we called the ambulance, rushed him into hospital. He had had a major stroke. Um, and at that time, we had the conversations, you know, like, like would your dad want to be on life support? And, and we talked about those kinds of things. And um, the family get together. Yeah, sorry. I'm probably a bit of a quiet talker. Um, so we had the, you know, the talks about, you know, do you think would your dad would be on life support? And anyway, but dad didn't die at that time. And we had uh, four years of really amazing grace. I got to have a, a really good time with him after that he never learned to walk again and he never learned how to talk again um but we sung together which was really cool so whenever I'd come you know back I'd sing with my dad and so that was kind of special right at the same time I got my invite to medical school and but it was out of town you know and of course dad had always been you know the as people know they have Chinese parents or or Mennonite parents or otherwise you know the pressure to do well and so you, you know, my brothers and sisters were like, your dad would be so mad at you if you gave up on medicine just because of him. So I showed him my acceptance letter, and I'm like, you know, dad, uh, do you get this about me going away to med school? It's out of town, and do you understand? He was holding my hand, and he squeezed my hand. And I'm like, is it okay if I go? And he gave my hand a squeeze. And I'm like, do you love me? And he, like, destroys my hand, like, just crushes all the bones <laughs> in my hand, basically. I'm like, okay, okay. He gets what's going on. Um, so I got to do four years of medicine in Saskatoon. Really fun time. Get to see a lot of, you know, life and death and birth that you're talking about. And lots of stories that I'm happy to share, but we don't have the time. Um, but my first summer in med school, I decided to go and do some research in the condition that my mom has. And... Uh, so did some research, also decided to get my test at the same time too, and found out that I have the same gene that she does. Um, and so, you know, God can do miracles, and, you know, occasionally things are go wrong, but from a scientific standpoint, I've got a 100% chance, basically, of, of going down the same road um, as she uh, did. So that was, you know, like, that was tough. Um, but I continued medicine, continued, kept going, and uh, um, really good years, really fun years. Right when I was done and right before I came here, um, so I had matched to Ottawa for residency here. Um, in the residency application process, you travel all over the country to try to figure out where you're going to go for residency. And... Uh, I applied to to BC, and normally, you know, it was just, it's a really stressful time. I think Daniel's going through this right now. He knows it's busy, crazy, intense, and uh, 
I just had one day and a half in BC and it was in Vancouver. But I thought, you know what? I don't care. If I'm anywhere close to my dad, I'm going to go see him. So I got a car, drove through the mountains, up over to see dad. And, uh, you know, then I had to go off to the next interview. But we kind of had a thing. You know, dad, like, like, I'll see you next time. But if not, if not, then we'll see each other, you know, up there. And so that was kind of, this wasn't unusual at this point. That's kind of what we said every time, saying goodbye. Um, went back to Saskatoon. A few weeks later, got the call, you know, four o'clock in the morning. And uh, your dad was fine last night. He had supper. Um, we don't really know what happened, but he's gone. And uh, so, you know, that, that experience of like, you know, seeing death, we got the family together, we had the funeral. And it was cool that I got to share at the funeral a little bit about like the work that I'd seen in my dad's life. You know, how there was never one magic moment where he, God fixed everything with him, but I got to see those changes and it was a real privilege for me to, to be able to see the work that God did in his life. Um, and I'm really glad that, you know, those, you, we had those moments together. So the last month or so, and I'll just do a quick update. So I spent um, some time in BC. My mom's, she's doing okay. Um, she doesn't walk really, but uh, um, we can still have conversations, kind of, sort of. And uh, my work had given me time off because um, there's some question that I might possibly be getting at the point where... Um, might be losing some capabilities, like I've noticed over the past year, any kind of like organization, planning, um, dealing with multitasking has become like really, really tough. So work gave me some time off to uh, go home and, and talk about, you know, maybe, maybe I won't be finishing. Um, and so I had some time with mom. And one day, just kind of walking and reading scripture with her, I was reading in Hebrews where um, it says that, that Jesus, the Son of God, he took part in flesh and blood just like we did. And I realized, like, why communion is so significant. Like, yeah, it's bread and wine, but we're actually remembering that, like, Jesus, who's the, the best picture of God that we've ever seen, he actually became like a human being. He had, he, you know, he became a baby and had to deal with that frustration of, you know, you're a baby and you reach for something, you can't do it. And it's like, and then as a man, you know, he faced all the same temptations that we did. I don't know how he did that, but he did. And then on the cross, you know, he, just like us, experienced that final, like, stripping away of all his capabilities. And I was reading it there with mom. So with Huntington's disease, there's some really characteristic kind of movements that happen later on, like when people kind of lose the ability to move properly. And I got just a tiny vision of Jesus on the cross. And he was moving too, but it was because he had nails in his wrists and the pain was so bad. And I saw, like, Jesus, he... He bore not only like our sins, but he bore our sicknesses. He bore our suffering. He chose to become one of us. And that's the, that's the Jesus that, you know, I trust in. Yeah. Amen. Awesome. And, uh, ben, I know last summer we had talked about 
for, for many of us, this idea of death is, for most of us, we go through our life and it's kind of this um, not really present thing. It's a thing we, we kind of can put off until maybe we'll be older someday and then we'll have to worry about it. And he said, because when you found out that you carried the gene for Huntington's, it became far more real to you, right, of, of how much time you, you have left or what your quality of life will be, right? Is that fair to say? And it's kind of changed a little bit of your perspective and in, in, in how you're viewing your life. And I guess and you're, you're finding this out about your life at the same time you're seeing your mom, you know, the, the disease kind of taking over more and more of her life. Eh? I don't know if there's anything... Yeah, like it's an interesting because we can't really always live as though we're dying. Mm. <laughs> There's life that has to be done. Mm. <laughs> and so it's kind of balancing, I think, that like, you know, everybody's going to die. Mm -hmm. Some of us, maybe it's staring in our face a little more. Mm -hmm. One thing I kind of struck me this trip too was so there's Psalm 27. I'm reading through the Psalms right now. Uh, Shane, who's not here, and Dan had both suggested, you know, read through the Psalms, they're really great. And I was reading Psalm 27, and the psalmist says, If I didn't believe that I would see God's goodness in the land of the living, I don't know how I'd go on. So, you know, these moments, these like, so I was hanging out with mom, and we just had, you know, these fun moments of just singing, mm -hmm. you know, and meeting up with friends too. And I think I seek out more people, so like I've kept kind of friends, people that are hurting or have sickness or you know what I mean mm. so we also hung out with a young lady who um, was really really sick she went down fast and but we just had this moment of laughing together it's just like wow it's so good joy in the moment yeah that is awesome yeah sweet well thanks for sharing yeah thank thanks you for sharing a little bit yeah